would, because that's a huge accomplishment. Now, that being said, I did not know really anything about Race Weekend until like a week ago, uh, because this is our first year living in Indianapolis on Race Weekend. And so we were watching the news, and they had that seven-day graphic of what the weather was going to do, and it said Carb Day. And I was like, what is Carb Day? Is that, like, is that a day that you eat pasta? Is that a day that you eat lots of bread? I have no idea what this is. And so I asked Nancy and Jeff, and they said, no, 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 no. It's like a big party at the Speedway, and it, it goes with carburetor. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that makes more sense now. But uh, we are somewhat more competent on what race weekend is now that we're here and now that we've been through a week of it. Uh, but on top of that, it's not just race weekend. As Joshua mentioned, it's Memorial Day weekend. And we are so grateful to be able to come here and to worship Christ freely the way we do in this community and not have to worry about danger when we leave or danger when we come in. And so we are so thankful for the sacrifices that so many have made to give us that freedom and give us that ability. And I pray that we can make the most of it and worship God uh, with, with grateful hearts for what he's done for us and the ability we have to come here and worship him freely. So... With that, uh, you may see on the screen behind me that the sermon this week is called Eye Test. And last week, the sermon was called Heart Surgery. And so you're probably thinking, what is the deal with all the medical terminology? I'll tell you this, it's not anything intentional. It just kind of happened that way. Uh, But last week, we talked about heart surgery because we looked at this passage in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is confronted by these Pharisees, these religious leaders. And these guys come to Jesus, and they're a little bit bent out of shape Because some of Jesus' disciples aren't practicing this tradition of hand-washing. And it wasn't something that was in the law. It wasn't something that was in the law that God had given Moses years and years and years earlier. But it was just kind of one of those things, it was an unwritten rule. It was kind of one of those things that I guess you didn't have to do it if you really didn't want to. But you'd kind of be looked down upon a little bit. You might be seen as a little bit rude, as a little bit unknowing of culture and everything. But the Pharisees viewed it as more than that. So when they see some of Jesus' disciples not practicing this hand-washing, they immediately flip out. And so they come to Jesus and they say, why aren't your people doing this? And the problem the Pharisees have is that they're taking this tradition and they're elevating it equal to or maybe even greater than the law of God. That's the issue that Jesus sees with these guys. And even more than that, he says, you know what, guys? Even when you do get the law... Even when you do get your traditions and have them in the right place and have your priorities straight, the problem is that your heart is far from God. And so even when you do get it right, it's in vain because your heart's far from him. And then Jesus goes into this spiel and he tells his disciples that, you know what, guys, what makes you unclean, what makes you defiled is not what you eat. It's not what you touch. It's not whether or not you wash your hands. What determines that is is where your heart is. And we hear that, we think, okay, well, then we just have to get our hearts right. Our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are damaged. Our hearts are messed up. But all we have to do is fix them. Do some good things. Stop doing bad things. Start some good habits. Stop old habits. But here's the thing. With heart surgery, you can't perform your own heart surgery. If something was wrong with your heart right now and you went to the hospital, they could give you all the tools, but if someone else wasn't doing it, you'd be in bad shape. You can't perform your own heart surgery. And so we talked about the fact that we need God to transform our hearts, to fix our hearts, and we can't do that on our own. 
And so last week we talked about heart surgery. This week we're going to talk about an eye test. So if it was about transplanting your heart last week and having God fix your heart last week, this week it's about checking your eyes, checking to see whether or not you're really seeing Jesus for who he is. How do you see Jesus? How clearly do you see Jesus? That's what we're going to talk about today. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verses 14 through 38, but I'm going to summarize verses 1 through 13. So Mark chapter 8, we'll have verses up on the screen like we do every other week. We have Bibles scattered throughout the room if you want to follow along on one of those. So starting in verse 1, what we see is this feeding of 4,000. Mark chapter 8, this feeding of 4,000. And this should seem pretty familiar to something we read about a couple weeks ago. We talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. In this case, what we see is that Jesus is teaching. This crowd has gathered, and they've been with him for a few days now. And so the disciples start looking at each other and thinking, man, you know, at some point, like, these people have to eat. They need to get something to eat. And so they say, hey, Jesus, send these people and have them go get some food. But Jesus is worried that they're so weak And they're so hungry that they might not make it all the way to go get food. He's taking on that role of good shepherd. He's not just throwing his sheep out there and letting them fend for themselves. He's taking care of them. And so he decides that he's going to feed these 4,000. And this is just so similar to that other story. One thing that's a little bit different is that we see this passage says there are 4,000 people. The other passage said there's 5,000 men. So we can pretty safely assume that there are way fewer people in this passage than there were in the other passage. But even then, that does not discount in any way whatsoever how miraculous this really is. So Jesus breaks these loaves of bread. There's only seven of them. And he feeds these people, and there's even leftovers. It's completely amazing what Jesus does here. And so they get away. The people are fed. They move on. Verses 11 through 13, we see the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they confront him because they're looking for a sign from heaven. They're looking for a sign from heaven. They're saying, Jesus, do something to prove to us who you are. Establish who you are. But here's the problem. Jesus has already done that. Jesus has done enough to prove who he is. Think about all he's done. He's fed 4,000. He's fed 5,000. He's walked on water. He's calmed storms. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He raised a girl from the dead. If you are seeing Jesus at this point, if you're these Pharisees and you've seen Jesus do all these things and you still don't believe, it's not a matter of needing another sign. It's a matter of getting out of denial. That's the case the Pharisees find themselves in. And so Jesus is not in the position to be a trick pony and prove to them what he is when he's already done so much. They're not really looking for a sign because no matter what Jesus does, the response would have been the same. Well, we need one more. We need one more because they didn't like what they were seeing from Jesus. They were in denial of who he was. They didn't need a sign. They needed to come to peace with the signs they had already seen. So starting in verse 14, picking up that passage. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So these disciples get in the boat, and they're concerned because there's 13 of them, and they only have one loaf of bread. I hope you're seeing the irony here, considering the passage that we just read about with the feeding of the 4,000. 
So they only have this one loaf of bread, and Jesus sees them looking at this one loaf of bread and discussing, well, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed everybody? We're going to starve out here in this boat. We don't have enough bread for all of us. And so Jesus takes this bread and uses it as an object lesson. He takes this bread and he says, hey, guys, see this loaf of bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the biggest thing that makes leaven significant is yeast. Yeast. And yeast was something that was unseen that would infiltrate bread and make it leavened. And so Jesus' whole point is that, guys, if you hang out with these Pharisees, if you hang out with Herod, if you let the way these guys think get into your mind, before you know it, it'll influence you. You won't even realize it. It's unseen. But watch out what these guys are saying. Watch out for what these guys are teaching, because if you're not careful, before you know it, it'll mess up the whole loaf, and you'll be on board with them. And then look at their response. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. How many? 12. You you, you took up 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. How many? Seven. Exactly. He gets it, but the disciples don't get it. It's amazing. So Jesus is frustrated that these guys can't get the point. And look at how he continues. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Up to this point, the disciples are clueless. There has been a consistent trend of them just not getting it. First of all, they're worried about not having enough bread for 13 people when they just saw Jesus feed 4,000. Seriously? He's thinking, guys, did you not? Where were you when that just happened? You were there. You saw it. Why don't you trust this? Why don't you get it? You've seen what I can do. Why don't you get it? And then on top of that, when he says the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, they're picking up their bread and saying, huh, well, I don't see anything different about it. I mean, it looks like pretty normal bread. And he's like, guys, we're not talking about your loaf of bread, okay? It was just an object lesson. Don't worry. I'm not talking about the Pharisees and Herod poisoning your loaf of bread. That's not what happened. And in fact, don't worry about the fact that we only have one loaf of bread. It's going to be okay, We're not going to starve. Don't worry. And I would imagine the rest of this boat ride was kind of awkward, was kind of quiet, because this was probably the most scathing rebuke that Jesus has made of the disciples up to this point. You almost get the impression that he's ready to just cut these guys loose and go get some new disciples, because they've proven they have no clue what they're doing. They've proven they are completely incompetent. And how in the world are they going to be the leaders that Jesus is trying to train them to be? So there's this quiet boat ride. Jesus shows this frustration, and you can't totally blame him. And then we pick up in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. 
And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So they come to Bethsaida, and pretty standard procedure. They enter a new town, people hear that Jesus is there, and they bring a sick person for him to be healed. Pretty standard procedure so far from the Gospel of Mark. But when things get a little bit weird is when Jesus spits on his eyes. Now the question may be, why in the world would Jesus spit on this guy's eyes? Because, I mean, so far in the Gospel of Mark, all Jesus has had to do is touch people. And there were some people who didn't even, weren't even touched by Jesus' hand, but they touched Jesus' cloak and they got healed. So why is it that Jesus feels this need to use spit? I don't know. We really don't know why he chooses to use spit. It is known that spit in that day was thought to have some kind of magical healing properties by some people. But even then, Jesus doesn't need magical gimmicks to heal people. He's Jesus. Why is he using this spit? And then the other weird thing about this healing is that Jesus lays his hands on him, and the blind guy gets his sight back, but not all the way. So did the spit interfere with the healing? Did it somehow cause interference between Jesus' power and the guy's blindness? Did Jesus need to take a swig of Gatorade and then try again because he had ran out of electrolytes? Did he run out of power? That's not the case at all. What's happening here is that there is something deeper going on. This guy is blind, and then he gets his vision back, but not completely. He kind of sees, but he kind of doesn't see. He sees people better than he did before, but he still says they're like trees walking. They're blobs. So his vision isn't totally back yet. Verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So after touch number two, without spit, the guy's vision comes back, fully comes back. And he's actually really able to see people. He's seeing clearly for the first time. And this is going to come back a little bit later. So remember this story about the guy's process of healing. Step one, being blind. Step two, kind of seeing. Step three, clearly seeing. Remember that passage. And then we get to verse 27. Verses 27 through 30 are the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. Everything changes after verses 27 through 30. And we read that here. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? So they're on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus confronts his disciples. And he says, guys, we've been together for a pretty decent amount of time now. I've been healing. I've been performing all kinds of miracles. I've been teaching Who do people say that I am? What kind of rumors are going around about me? Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, I mean, some people say that you're John the Baptist. If you remember a couple chapters back, John the Baptist has been killed by Herod. But that wouldn't really make any sense because John the Baptist and Jesus, they were alive at the same time. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. So it really wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to be the reincarnated version of John the Baptist. 
Some people say Elijah. That's not a terrible guess. A lot of Jews believed in that day that Elijah would have some role to play when the Messiah came and this restoration of Israel, the restoration of the kingdom of God. They thought that might be an important part of it. And then the common answer seems to be, well, people just say you're one of the prophets. Even most of Jesus' enemies would probably have given him that much credit. They would have said, yeah, this guy's probably a prophet. We're not ready to get on board with all the other stuff, but we'll give him that. He looks like a prophet. He smells like a prophet. He must be a prophet. They'll give him that much credit. And so they give him this answer of what other people are saying about him, and then he turns it around on them. And he says, okay, guys, that's what other people are saying. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And look at Peter's response. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. For the first time, the disciples seem to get something right. The light bulb goes off in the head of the disciples. And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, great job. Way to go. You finally got it. They're showing this little glimmer of understanding who Jesus is. Maybe their eyes are being opened. Maybe their ears are being opened. Maybe their hearts are softening. And they're finally starting to see clearly. But here's the thing. They don't truly see clearly yet. They're like that guy in Bethsaida. They kind of see, but they kind of don't see. So Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about him. And then in verse 31, he goes on and he says some interesting things. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And then Jesus immediately goes into this teaching. And he says, guys, I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to be rejected. And I'm going to die on a cross. That's what's going to happen to me. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And Mark adds, he said this plainly. This is not a parable. This is not some uh, riddle for the disciples to solve. Jesus is calling it for what it is. He's not trying to get some deeper meaning across. He's just saying, guys, I'm going to die. Take what I'm saying at face value. That's what's going to happen to me. And look at Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, the word there used for rebuke would imply that Peter is not gently pulling Jesus off to the side and saying, hey, buddy, kind of saying some weird things. Are you sure you really know what you're talking about? Are you sure you really get this? The word would imply that, that Peter is physically restraining Jesus. Peter is not happy about what Jesus has to say. And the reason is, is that in Peter's mind, the Christ isn't rejected. The Christ doesn't suffer. The Christ does not die. And if someone who claims to be the Christ does die, is defeated, then clearly that just proves that he wasn't really the Christ after all. And so if this is Jesus' idea of what the Christ looks like, that's not meeting Peter's eye test for who the Christ really is. Peter has these preconceived notions of what this is all going to look like, and Jesus is not matching up with them. All this stuff about suffering and dying and being rejected, that's not on Peter's radar. He's not into that. But then look at Jesus' response. 
Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter is kind of seeing clearly, kind of not. He's acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, but he's not exactly the kind of Christ that he's looking for. Jesus being the Christ is a little bit different than what Peter had in mind. So he's kind of getting it, he's kind of not. And the thing is, when you look at that question of, who do you say that I am? The question that Jesus asked his disciples. It was the most important question they could ever answer. And it's the most important question that you and I will ever answer. Who do you say that I am? There's a lot of people who will say a lot of things about Jesus. He's a great moral teacher. He's a great miracle worker. Some people say that Jesus never even existed, that he was some made-up figure. Some people say that, yeah, he existed, but then the church made up a bunch of stuff after he died. They made up a bunch of stuff later and turned him into something he really wasn't. All that, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? Is he the Christ? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? Is he King? Or is he less than that? It's the most important question you will ever answer. It's the most important question that your neighbors will ever answer. Most important question your family, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates. Most important question they will ever answer. And if all of this stuff is true in Scripture, if everything we read about Jesus is true, then eternity hangs in the balance with that question for people like us. Who do we say that Jesus is? Do we see him at all? Do we kind of maybe see who he is? Or do we see him clearly? So Jesus goes on in verse 34, and he starts telling the people a little bit about what all this means. If he's the Christ, and the Christ is going to suffer and die and be rejected, here's what that means for people who are going to follow him. Verse 34, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what we see here is Jesus is saying, guys, I am the Christ. You're right about that much. But I'm the kind of Christ that suffers and dies and is rejected. And in a lot of people's eyes, you know what that means? That looks like I lost. That looks like that I've been defeated if I suffer and I die. But here's the thing. I'm victorious in suffering. Victory comes through my death. It doesn't mean I'm defeated. It's a part of God's victorious plan. But you know what that means for you? That means for you that you may experience the same thing. That you too may have to take up a cross if you're going to follow me. 
this isn't going to be a perfect, easy route. Things could get hard. It's a life of denying yourself. Luke adds it's a life of denying yourself and taking up your cross daily. That's what following a Christ like Jesus is like. Following a Christ like Jesus doesn't involve having powerful positions in this brand new government, having powerful positions in this brand new kingdom and empire. It involves suffering and self-denial and taking up a cross. And guys, are you sure you're ready for that? That's what Jesus is saying. Are you sure that you're ready for this? Are you sure you're up for this? Do you know what you're getting yourselves into? Because here's the thing. If you lose your life here, you will save it in eternity. And if you save your life here, you will lose it in eternity. And then Jesus says, but guys, don't worry about it. Your presuppositions about the Christ involve power and glory and wealth and success. Here's the thing. Don't worry about that stuff because none of that is worth it compared to following me. You can have the power. You can have the wealth. You can have the success in this life, but it's not going to be worth it. Because what can a man profit if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Is it really worth it? Jesus is saying this isn't going to be easy. Your life is not immediately going to get better tomorrow if you start following me. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Are you ready for that? And now sometimes we read passages like this about denying self and taking up our crosses, and we say, well, where is the grace in that? Do I trust in grace, or do I trust in denying myself and taking up my cross? Which one do I look at? And here's the thing. Scripture teaches that salvation is by grace through faith. That's how salvation happens. Nothing more. By grace through faith. But this life of self-denial, this life of taking up a cross, that's the response that happens when you experience that grace. You're not saved by denying yourself. You're not saved by taking up your cross. But denial of self and taking up of cross That's the response to being saved, living a cross-shaped life. When you experience the grace that God is offering you, that's when you can say, you know what? Gaining the whole world isn't worth it. I'll take my chances with Jesus. I'll take my chances denying myself. I'll take my chances taking up my cross. And so if you, ask, if you ever ask the question, now wait a minute, is this a church that's about grace or is this a church that's about discipleship? The answer is yes. It's both. It's both and. Neither one of those things can be overemphasized. They can be neglected, but they can't be overemphasized. So here's the question for you. Where are you at on that scope of seeing Jesus? Are you that blind man who really can't see anything at all? Do you have no clue who Jesus is? You have no idea what this all means. You don't know if he was real. You don't know if he was fake. You don't know if he's some uh, moral teacher, if he's a miracle worker. You have no idea who Jesus is. You don't see anything. Or maybe you're step two. Maybe you're kind of starting to understand who Jesus is a little tiny bit. You're starting to get a better idea of who Jesus is, but you're not 100% sure yet. Or maybe you're at step three. 
Maybe you do see Jesus clearly. And you say, you know what? I get who Jesus is. He's Lord. He's Savior. He's King. He's slaughtered lamb. He died on the cross for my sins to redeem me, to bring me back to relationship with God. If you do see that clearly, do you realize what that means? Do you realize what kind of life that leads to? Jesus never says it's going to be easy, but he says it's going to be worth it. And so that question for you of who do you say that I am, I hope you'll answer that question today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice that he made for us. And thank you for all that you do for us, even when we totally miss the point. God, we're thankful for the fact that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We can't thank you enough for that. And God, I pray that as we trust in you, we'll see what that might mean for us, and we'll determine that, you know what? The grace that you show us is worth it. It's worth what the rest of our lives might look like. It's worth that self-denial. It's worth that taking up of that cross. It's worth that potential suffering. It outweighs anything we could ever gain here. I pray that you'll help us to see that. I pray that we will see Jesus clearly for who he truly is. That our eyes will pass that test when it comes to the question of who do you say that I am. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood he shed for us. For our sins. Thank you for that resurrection. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. At the end of the service, we're going to have a couple of our elders standing on the sides of the room. If you're prepared to answer that question of who do you say Jesus is, talk to one of those guys. If you have questions about the church, if you have something you'd like to pray about, those guys would be more than willing to talk to you. Thank you.